Well, if you have your Bibles, take them and turn to, to Deuteronomy. That's going to be our starting point today. Uh, but let me bring you up to speed as to where we're at as a church family. Uh, every fall, we, uh, we start out with a, a series. When school starts, that kind of begins our ministry year. And so we begin a series every fall to, to sort of remind us who we are as a church so that we'll keep going in the same direction as a church. Uh, I have many opportunities uh, when I go do men's seminars to... Uh, to, to uh, go to different churches, and I find that all churches have one thing in common. And one of them, and that one thing we have in common is we, we're made up of multiple personalities, and we all want to build the kingdom, and we all are passionate about different things. And so it's very easy for a church to be going in so many different directions. Uh, sometimes when I get picked up at the airport and taken to the church where I'm going to speak, you hear little things. People talk about their pastors, and of course, they all love their pastors, and they talk, they talk about a new program they're starting, or they talk about this or that, but I find that churches can be really easily diluted as people go in different directions. Uh, we can almost be like little rivulets or drops of water that don't water much of anything because we're all going in different directions. And so that's why at the beginning of the school year, the ministry year, we want to make, we, we, we talk about some of the core values that we have as a church so that we'll go in the same direction and hopefully make a greater impact together as God's people, but also that we'll enjoy um, following Christ together. Uh, now, it hasn't changed for 21 years. Our motto, attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. That's, that's our motto. And uh, we, have, we have been about trying to make a difference in this community for a long time, and our purpose is the same. We're a Christ-centered Presbyterian church committed to leading people to personal faith in Christ, building them up in the faith, and deploying them as active servants of the Great Commission. So that's, that's been our purpose. It still is our purpose, and that's who we are as the church. We are to be revolutionaries who are unleashed on the world to make a difference in the world. That's who we are. Now, let me tell you what we're not. As a church, we are not, we are not a holy huddle of perfect people that have gathered together in this place to just, for a little while, get away from them out there. We're, you know, we're not a holy huddle of perfect people who just can't wait to be away from pagans. And uh, so, uh, no, that's not what we are. In fact, as a matter of fact, somebody sent this email to me it was really a very nice PowerPoint presentation, but I'm just going to give you the bottom line here. I'm not going to share that very nice PowerPoint with you, but they said, they said the next time you think God can't use you, remember the people in the church. Noah was drunk. Abraham was too old. Isaac was a daydreamer. Jacob was a liar. Leah was ugly. I didn't say that. That's what this is. Joseph was abused. Moses had a stuttering problem. Gideon was afraid. Samson had long hair and was a womanizer. Jeremiah and Timothy were too young. David had an affair and was a murderer. Elijah was suicidal. Isaiah preached naked. That's why I don't preach from Isaiah too much around. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Jonah ran from God. Naomi was a widow, Job went bankrupt, Peter denied Christ, the disciples fell asleep while praying, Martha worried about everything, 
The Samaritan woman was divorced more than once. Zacchaeus was too small. Paul was too religious. Timothy had an ulcer. And Lazarus, Lazarus was dead. We're made, we're, we're made up of all kinds of people. We think God can't use us, but he can. But the thing we must always remember is that we're not a bunch of totally together, perfectly spiritual people. We're the church. We're in process. And yet I love it. God wants to use people. God has always used people just like I read about to change the world. He has all, always taken the insignificant, and use them in a powerful way. Now, another thing we're not is that we're not a social club that just gathers together every once in a while to see friends. We're not just a social club. We are fomenting a revolution. That's who we are. And sometimes we forget. Uh, we forget that that's who we are as a church. We're a bunch of revolutionaries who got together and, uh, and God is using us to change the world. And... Uh, and we're not here to do the same thing year after year after year in the same way that we always did before. I'll tell you the story of the, the two moose hunters who flew to Canada to hunt moose, and they, their pilot took them back into the wilderness and dropped them off, picked them up in two weeks, and, they, and there they were, the two hunters and two moose that they had shot that day. And he said, I told you guys, we can't take two moose. I mean, two of you and me and one moose each. That's all this plane can handle. They said, well, I, you know, that's what we did last year. We went hunting. We got two of us, two moose. We, the same size plane got us out of there last year. He goes, well, okay, well, if it happened last year, I guess we can do it this year. And uh, so, all right. So he loaded them up, and they tried to take off, but they couldn't make it. They, got, they, they, they couldn't get the altitude. They crashed the plane. The two hunters crawl out of the plane. One, one hunter says to the other, where, where are we? And he goes, I don't know. I think we're about half a mile further than we were last year. That drives me crazy. I become suicidal. When, when, when I, not really, I'm kidding, okay? But, but it drives me crazy to think we've only made it a half mile further. As the revolutionaries, the revolution ought to be getting further and further and further every year. And by God's grace, that's who we are, people that want to continue to make progress. Insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting different results, right? So God's called us to, to, to foment a revolution, and you guys, and I'm a part of that, that together. So we come together at the beginning of the ministry year to kind of get those core principles together. Last week, when we started this Unleashed series, uh, we, we, we talked about the, the motivation of our hearts. And we said that the starting point for a revolution is that the revolutionaries have the right starting point. Your motivation is everything. What you are motivated to do is what you will most likely do. And if you don't have motivation, if I don't have motivation, or if my motivation is impure, or if my motivation is selfish, the starting point is bad. The results will always be bad. So we said that motivation is absolutely crucial. And there is no motivation more powerful than the motivation we talked about last week. Does anybody remember what that revolutionary motivation is? What did I talk about last week? Oh, man, that's scary. Anybody? 
good. You get three free sins. That's good. The motivation that we talked about last week is this whole idea of revolutionary love. The reality is, is that when Jesus Christ came into this world, he came because he loved us. And remember we looked at John 13? We looked at John 13 where Jesus was gathered with his disciples shortly before he goes to the cross. And what was it that he was going to do for them in that room? Does anybody remember? John 13, he was going to do what? Wash their feet. And we looked at that. He said, having loved his own who was in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. And he starts to unfold the fullness of his love by washing those dirty, rotten, sandal, leather, sandy, sweaty, dirty feet of his disciples. And then he allows himself to be arrested. And then he allows himself to be interrogated by these super spiritual Pharisees. And then he allows himself to be scourged and beaten. And then he allows himself to be nailed, spread eagle on crossbeams, the Lord of the universe. Why? To show us the full extent of his love for us. And that if we ever get God's love for us, if that ever, if we ever understand deep down the unconditionality of all of that, we will be radically changed people because those who are unconditionally loved, love unconditionally. Loved people love. And we said, as we defined love, that love as Jesus models it is egoless, egoless compassion in action. And that changes the world. But our motivation, our starting point has got to be everything. Now, can we talk? Do you all feel God's love in your heart? Y'all feel loved by God right now? A lot of you don't. I know it. I know it. Because I know Christians and I know myself. This week, Steve Brown and uh, Kathy Wyatt and Eric Guzman and myself on Key Life got to interview John Eldridge over the phone uh, uh, in God's country, Colorado. And um, we were talking to him about this book I'm reading, Walking with God. Talk to him, hear from him, really. And I said, John, you know, one of the things that, that I see in this book that you said, I don't, I'm not sure I understand, is you say, sometimes we make agreements with God. Agreements not to be loved. What do you mean? And he said, you know, what I mean is simply this, that from our past, somebody who said, you're not worthy, or you're not good enough, or you'll never achieve this, or, or you go through the difficulty or a pain of, of something in your life, a loss, a sickness, you name it. John Eldridge says, what we do is we make agreements with God and we say, I'll never be loved. I know it. I just know it. I will never be loved. And so we don't let in the love of God for us. We've made an agreement. And a lot of Christians go through much of their Christian life getting all of the knowledge of the Bible, but never experiencing the reality of the unconditional love of God the Father for us. And if we're ever going to be revolution, one sermon on love that I did last week, and God's love for you, listen, that's not going to change your life. But I'll tell you, if we don't make agreements that we're going to let God's love in, we'll never become changed people. You will never enjoy your Christian life. 
you'll be coming to church year after year after year doing this thing. But if you never, you know, you say you don't know how bad I am. Yes, I do. Well, not all the details, but I'd like to know. You say, you don't know how I messed up today. No, he does, and he loves you anyway. You don't know what I have to be forgiven. No, I don't, but he does, and it must be a lot because he went to the cross to do it. So, what we said last week is that going into the new year is not that we would try harder to do more for him, but that we would start off with our motivation, allowing, making an agreement that this year, as we start a new year, we're gonna let his love sink into our life. We're gonna to listen to the gospel, we're gonna preach it to ourselves, and we're gonna let him transform us so that we can, well then, yeah, if we are loved, we will love, and we will become the revolutionaries that he intended us to be. That's the starting point. Well. Somebody said, all truly original ideas come from the Bible. That's an original idea that loved people love. Now, today I want to give you the next really original idea that will change, change us for a new year as a church. And if we can go in this direction, it'd be powerful. Uh, revolutionary perspective. We talked about revolutionary motivation, revolutionary perspective uh, for this year. And this is a perspective that can change our life. Now, before I give it to you, some of you will say, when I give you this perspective, some of you are saying, I know that, that's not new. That's old, and I, I've got this in my life. That's great. I just read Second um, Peter through this week in my personal time with the Lord, and uh, in, in the space of four verses, three times, Peter says, I want to stir you up by way of reminder. I want to remind you guys of something very important. And then he says it again. He says, my departure from this earth is imminent as the Lord Jesus Christ has said to me. So I want to stir you up by way of reminder. I think back over my years as a father, I've, remi I've reminded more than I've given new truth. You give the truth once and say, didn't we talk about that before? Over and over and over. Over. So when I bring this up, some of you are going to say, this is not new. No, but it's, it will change your life if you get it to the deeper level. And here's the perspective, two part, really. The first part perspective is this, God owns everything. God owns everything. This perspective will change your life if you'll allow it to sink in. God owns everything. Now let's start with uh, scripture, Deuteronomy 8, verses 11 through 18. Moses says, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you, this is just before the Israelites go into the promised land. Deuteronomy means second law. They're just about ready to go into the promised land, and he's reminding, he's giving them the law again, so they'll remember Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, verse 13, and when your herds and your flocks grow uh, large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful desert, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you to... Brought you water out of hard rock. 
He gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your fathers never known to you he gave you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. I could do a five-point sermon just out of that. I won't do a five-point sermon uh, because I've got about 10 points already today. But real quick, he's saying, because I've redeemed you, you need to understand that I also not only saved you, but made a covenant with you so that I could bless you, and then I have blessed you. And you will see this one day, but how easy it is for you once you've been given all of the wealth to think you produced it yourself. Don't forget I gave you even the ability to produce this wealth. Remember this. That's the five-point sermon. But this theme goes back to Job. Job 41.11. Job is the oldest book of the Bible, and in that book he says, who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Haggai 2, 8. Now, did you catch that? It's not Haggai. It's Haggai, okay? Just, it's Haggai, not Haggai. 2, 8. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. And then 1 Corinthians, one of the most famous verses in the Bible do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Everything is God's ownership. Everything. It's an unwavering principle of biblical teaching that God owns, God owns everything. Now, some of you are quite upset right now, okay? And I know this is emotional for you, some of you. Uh, last week, I spoke to the heart. Today, I want to speak to your head. If this has already kind of ticked you off that I'm talking about this, suspend your emotions for just a minute and think with me logically. Doesn't it make sense that God owns everything? I was talking to a friend the other day who was telling me that Christian publishers... Christian publishers are looking for books that talk about God in relationship because Christians today are not looking for a God of theology. They're looking for a God of relationships, and I agree. So let me give you some relational dimensions of God. First of all, the doctrine, wait a minute, you just already, the doctrine of creation, is that relational or not? Well, it's very relational. The doctrine of creation says that God spoke and what he wanted to make comes into existence. Uh, the theological, uh, ex nihilo, the theological term ex nihilo means that he created things out of nothing. But the relational dimension here is to understand that he didn't have to create anybody, but God wanted relationships for some reason. And so he created people, he created this whole world but he created people for relation. You can't get much more relational than that. And by the way, when God created the world, notice he didn't take a patent out on it. You ever thought about that? He didn't take a patent out on it, uh, afraid that somebody would go to another planet and start over and take credit for it, because nobody can do that. So uh, he created, and he owns the world and everything in it by right of 
what? Creation. Secondly, by providence. That's another good biblical theological term. Providence is simply the biblical teaching that God not only created the world, but he continues to provide for the world. He, he gives us air. He gives us food. He gives us all kinds of opportunities even to create wealth. He continues to invest in his creation. And therefore, he owns us by creation, but he also owns us by providence. He owns us by the continual investment. You, you have an investment that you keep putting money in. The more you put in, the more it's yours. God is invested in this way. He owns everything by right of providence, but also by right of redemption. Because when we went astray, he sent Jesus for us. And he redeemed us. And he bought us back from sin and death and hell. So he owns us by right of redemption, creation and providence and redemption. And those are all relational things, right? Relational aspects of God. Okay, so with me, are you with me on those three? God owns all things by right of, let's say, can you, we say it together, is it too late? The early service was able to do this. Are you, he owns everything by right of creation. He owns everything by right of providence. He owns everything by, by right of redemption also, but then also by sovereignty. God is the supreme king of heaven and earth. It's all his. He owns it. God owns all. Does that make sense to you? Does that make sense in your head? It makes sense to me. But it's, the, it's not the intellectual part of that that's a problem. The problem with that is the emotional dimension to this, isn't it? That's why I'm talking to your head, not your hearts right now. Because this is so difficult for us because we Americans want to own everything. I want it to be my car, my house, my investments. I mean, I wanna, I wanna own my stuff, including even down to the little things like my chainsaw. Remember I told you a few weeks ago about that chainsaw that I threw away because it was a really bum chainsaw? Uh, it was electric, kind of a weenie chainsaw. Um, it was, and it was leaking oil and it, I threw it away. I finally got rid of it. My friend Dan helped me get a real, no more messing around, I'm a real man chainsaw, gas powered. I almost brought it here today. I want you to know, I want sermon illustration value. You know, I almost brought it. The problem, I, the reason I didn't bring it is I knew that if I brought it, I would start it. <laughs> I own that chainsaw, man, and it is so cool. So that the next hurricane that comes by, I walk out and have to help my neighbors with something, and I fire that puppy up, and they, they say, is that yours? I go, yeah, man, it's my chainsaw, because I'm a real man. And I want to own this stuff. That's American. It's human. For all of us. But I don't own my stuff. Let me give you a, a, a principle that I think is very important in this whole area of, of even the finances. I don't believe in any political or economic philosophy that gives the power to a government to take all of my money and redistribute it however it wants because it's not my money. It's God's money. Everything belongs to Him. Everything. Everything. And this is a huge principle. But if you and I get this, it'll change our life. One time John Wesley, the great Methodist preacher, was 
was riding his horse and a, a guy came galloping up to him and said, Mr. Wesley, Mr. Wesley, something horrible has happened. Your house has burned completely to the ground. And Wesley sat back in his saddle and he thought about it for a minute and he said, you know, God's house has burned to the ground and that means I have fewer responsibilities. If you get this, if I get this principle that God owns everything, it will lighten the load of our lives. Now think with it. Don't get emotional about this, okay? But just think about it with me. Because this is a powerful principle. This principle is followed up by another principle, another perspective that is absolutely true. Not only does God own everything, but God's people are his property managers. And this is crucial for us to understand that we are his property man managers. Luke 16, 1 through 13, and I'm not going to read the whole thing here. But uh, I, in fact, I'm not going to read this just to save a little bit of time. Uh, but I am going to read to you from 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5, where the Apostle Paul says, So then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ. And as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear. But that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's heart. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. This second principle is so good because God owns everything by right of, what? God owns everything by right of creation, providence, redemption, and sovereignty. I really think you guys can do a little bit better than that, okay? God owns everything by right of creation, providence, redemption, sovereignty. Good, good. This is a cult and we are trying to change your minds. Yeah, that is so important. But what is equally important to understand is that we are the managers, the stewards, the property managers of his stuff. It isn't ours. Nothing is. It's his, but we're to manage it. This came home to me the other day when I heard the story of this film crew from Hollywood that was trying to find the perfect house here in Florida. I don't know why, but they're trying to find the perfect house here in Florida for one of their scenes in one of their movies. So they found it down in South Florida, you know, the really nice house with a big, 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 big lawn, deep and green, beautiful lawn, because on that lawn, the scene dictated that they were going to have a bunch of stunt drivers come in with really fast cars and tear up that lawn and all of the bushes and all of the beautiful landscaping. But the, the, the people who were there, they, they, wanted, they wanted their house uh, in that movie. So they signed the paper, said, sure, you come do it. And so in a few days, the cars were there and they were just ripping up everything. Sod, turf, rose bushes, plants, everything. It was just torn up. And this went on. This went on until a neighbor called the owner who lived in New York. <laughs> and all that stopped momentarily. And the outcome was, you know, predictable. The owner was ticked. The residents were looking for a new place to live. And the director had egg on his face. Uh, there is a big difference between ownership and simply being a resident. 
there's one thing of being a manager and another thing of being the owner. And, and this principle is so big that what God is the owner of everything and we get to manage it. We are called to manage it. It's not ours. We're property managers. And next week, we're going to talk more about some of the investment principles that we have to follow properly. But, but what I want to talk briefly about is, is these three categories, and I'm going to let you go, is about this whole idea of what God owns. He owns our time, our treasures, and, his and our talents. He owns it all. And so this first area is the toughest for me. I got to tell you right up front, time is the toughest for me. But God owns my time. He owns my life. He owns my body. My time is his time because my body is his body. I've been bought with a price, right? Your time is not your own because you have been bought with a price. And that's very difficult. Man, that's tough. Uh, but that's just a fact. I am, I am only to manage the time that God has given me um, on this earth, and you too. I, I remember when we first got our first mortgage on our first house, and then I got a notification. I mean, it was only like three weeks later. I developed a relationship with this, first, this mortgage broker, and this was a big deal for me to buy my first house and the mortgage and everything, and he was so nice, and we had a relationship. And then I got this paper in the mail that said they'd sold my mortgage to somebody else. I felt absolutely betrayed. I, I know, I know, now I laugh at it too. I took this paper into Karen, I said, Karen, they sold us. We've been sold. And, and then I told somebody, one of you guys at church, they said, you idiot, they do that all the time. And then I realized, oh yeah, you know, it's not my mortgage, it's my mortgage to pay, but it's not my house. It's still not my house belongs to the financial people. But even then, it belongs to God. Well, that's the same thing true with your time. It's not yours. It's not mine. And this is the most difficult thing for me. I struggle with this. In fact, Steve Brown was uh, teaching not too long ago that there's some areas of sin that we may never get over and get better in in our own lives. This may be my area. Because I figure that time is so important. You send me nice little quotes about interruptions when I complain about how I hate to be interrupted. Interruptions are the way of life. Interruptions are God's demonstrating who's really in charge. Okay, I get that. And it still ticks me off. Because I want to control my schedule, don't you? Yeah, well, but it's bad with me. Uh, recently, we were, I was speaking up in Baltimore, at a, and this, this guy who listens to us on the radio sent Steve and me a t-shirt. He started a new organization called the Freedom of Fellowship, or the Freedom Fellowship. And on the back of this shirt, it says, he loves me 10% more. And um, he gave me that to wear, and I'm going to wear it. I'm, I need the fact that he loves me 10% more than he loves you guys. One of, the, one of the ladies, I'm kidding about that, but one of the ladies at the beginning of the service said, he loves me more than he loves you. I said, yeah, but I got a bumper sticker that says, Jesus may love you but I'm his favorite. <laughs> Listen, Jesus paid for all of our sins and I may not get better in this area, but I'm still learning that time is his. My time is not my time. <laughs> and so I have to start the day realizing that my day is not my day, it's his day and 
I need to say, what do you want to happen? Build in the interruptions. I take by faith that you'll bring good out of it because my time is not my time. There's adventures I still want to do. There's a lot of mountains I want to climb, a lot of things I want to do, and I don't know if I'll get to do them. But that's cool. It's his time. It really is. The treasures part is a whole lot easier. Time, treasures, and talents. My treasures are his when it comes to stuff. I like my stuff. You can like your stuff too. The stuff I have, I like. I like my car. I like, I like my house. I like my stuff. But it's his stuff. It really is his stuff. Not my stuff. He wants to ding up his car. He can ding up his car. He wants to take my stuff away. I like it. I like my backpack. I like my bicycle. I like that stuff. I like my 45 that the elders got me for one of my birthdays. That really makes meetings go quicker. I want you to know. Just take that sucker out, put it on the table, and you're done. Um, let's close and pray. Uh, he can take all that, and it's cool. It's done, because that stuff's his. Catch this. He lets me use it most of the time. Money is not, I, I was raised Baptist, man. I've been tithing since the cradle roll. My parents would stick a buck in my diaper before church every Sunday. I've been tithing forever. That's not a big deal. I figure it makes sense that God owns all my stuff by right of creation and providence and redemption and sovereignty. He owns all that stuff. He owns my stuff. I figure it makes sense that he lets me live on 90% of my income. The principle of tithing never really has given me any problems. I'm more spiritual than most of you. No, no, no. I struggle with time. Some of you might struggle with the treasures part of it. I understand that. I do. <clears throat> but it's a revolutionary principle that'll set you free. He lets you use most of that stuff most of the time. Talents. My talents are not mine. I don't have many. I, I've reached the, the point in my life where I realized the Peter principle. I've reached the level of my incompetency. There's only a couple of things that I do well, and I need to do those things. But it's at the point of my talents or the spiritual gifts that I've got to invest. Because those talents, and some of you just hate that radio political guy who says, talent on loan from God. It's true. Your spiritual gifts, your talents, they're on loan. And so I can't frame my day, I can't frame my life by telling God what to do because he owns it all. Well, here's the implications and the wrap it up real quick. First of all, think about this revolutionary principle that God owns it all. Let it sink in for you as I have to keep letting it sink in that it, 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 it is true of me. He owns everything and God's people are his property managers. If you get his loving motivation of your life in your life, then that won't be a scary principle because you'll know it's for your good that he owns it all. I want you to think of yourself not as a reservoir, but as a river. How easy it is for us to think of ourselves as a reservoir. I'm getting all this stuff. Oh, I can't wait. And we're storing it up. And God says, no, you're a river. And I blessed you with time, treasures, and talents. And that, and that I'm, I'm going to pass down through you to other people. I'm going to water other people through you. You're a river, not a reservoir. That makes a big difference for me. It helps me a great deal. The second principle is to understand that the burdens of ownership are not yours, but the blessings of impact are. 
The burdens of ownership are not yours, but the blessings of impact are. And so if you take your time, treasures, and talents and say, he owns them, how do you want me to use them? And you'll let him go with it. He will give you the opportunity of making an impact. We'll pray for our family. Karen and I, are, 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 are try, we're making a big financial decision because bottom line is Karen's parents are probably going to come live with us. I never thought that would happen. Now is not, the, at our house, we can't do it. So we got to sell our house and buy another house. This is not a good time to buy a house. Not a good time to sell a house. And, and so the Lord was talking to me. So, well, I want you to do this. I said, I know, but the margins are not real good right now. Could we move that, you know, until the economy really gets hopping? It's not your deal. Because it's not your profit. The blessings of impact will be yours. You don't own this stuff. Let it go. Lastly, think like a family, not as individuals. That's what is hard because we Americans all think of ourselves as individuals. And it's my money, my stuff, my time. And God says, no, no, we're a part of a family. You're not an individual. You're a part of the body, the kingdom. What if? What if every one of us in God's kingdom saw ourselves as dearly loved children who God owned everything, and together we brought our resources together? I don't mean put it all into a pool, but we all used our time, treasures, and talents as he said we should. What would the impact be if we all did that? that river would be a flood. And it just turns out that's God's way. He builds revolutionaries with a revolutionary perspective, and then he says, let's change the world. Now I've talked to your head. Now let's take it to heart. Thanks for listening. And if you're up for reading, make sure you click articles in the main menu of the app to check out the latest from Steve and all your favorite Key Life voices.